And I will be reading from uh, the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. And I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. Good afternoon. So we've been walking through the, the sermon, uh, what we know as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6. We're going to be here for a few more weeks. Uh, Jesus, this is the context of Matthew 5 and 6. Jesus begins his ministry by going into a local Jewish synagogue and reading uh, from the text, Old, Te- Old Testament text, Isaiah 61. And reading this text about freedom, about captives being free, blind eyes seeing, deaf hearing. And, and as, as he read Isaiah 61, he says, In your presence this hearing has become true. And following that powerful reading and proclaiming beginning of his ministry, his ministry takes off. And it's like a wildfire. He goes throughout the regions of Galilee proclaiming a new kingdom. He says, I'm different and I'm bringing a new kingdom. And he's healing the sick, those that are ill, they're coming to him. The lame is able to walk, the deaf is able to hear And all these miracles, demons are casted out. And by the time we get to Matthew 5, Jesus is probably most sought out rabbi in all of Israel. Not just Galilee, but all of Israel. And crowds upon crowds were coming and more were coming, hoping to see this prophet. And at the height of his popularity, some would argue this this was when Jesus' popularity was at the highest He takes hold of the moment. He doesn't waste this moment. He doesn't just continue healing or casting out demons. He takes note of this moment and he puts pauses on everything. He he stops his healing ministry, which was very successful. He stops his, his, his demon casting out ministry, which was also very successful. He goes to a high place. He goes up a mountain. Thus the name Sermon on the Mount. He begins teaching the crowd about the kingdom his new kingdom, and he proclaims the values of this new kingdom. Thousands of years later, no other religious teachings in human history has attracted the attention which has been devoted to the words we find in Matthew 5 and 6. Right? Especially the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, and, and, and the passage that we've been walking through the last several weeks And today we're going to be looking at the final portion of the Beatitudes, right? Verses 7 to 12. Maybe you've heard it growing up in the church. You've heard this many times. Maybe even outside of church, you've heard this teaching of Jesus. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. So we're going to be at the final portion covering last four. 
But one of the things we've established during our time, Pastor John preached last week, and I preached before. One of the things we established during our time in this series, early in the series, is that the ordering of these eight Beatitudes we find in our passage, the way it's ordered, the way they're put in order, it is very intentional. Jesus is not just giving this random list in random order, but the way he lays out this idea of his discipleship, his kingdom, very intentional. Each beatitude builds on what comes before and after. Which means, everyone who comes to give their lives to Jesus, we all must begin in the place of poverty in spirit. From that foundation of knowing without Jesus, without God, our lives, we have this desperate, desperate need for a Savior. And from that foundation, we begin to learn to mourn. We begin to learn to become more meek. And today, again, we're looking at the final four, verses 7 to 12, as it was read earlier by our brother Daniel. We're going to be looking at mercy, peacemaking, purity of heart, and facing opposition. Last four. And all four, if you think about it, are, are considered the fruit of, the fruit of becoming more and more like Jesus. So we talked about beatitude like a healthy tree. There are roots. The first three attitudes are the roots. Uh, the, the fourth beatitude is the shoot. And the beatitudes we're going to be looking at, they're like fruits. They're like fruits. Showing mercy, having pure heart, peacemaking, even to those who are speaking against us or who persecute us. These all have to do with relationships, how we deal with other people. Because Jesus knows relationships are hard. Why do you lose sleep at night? Why do so many of us dread going to work, dread visiting home? Like going home may be very stressful for you. In many ways, it's because it's due to relationships. Like a lot of us, when we think about the stress and challenges that we're, we're facing today, when you follow the rabbit trail, when you follow the source of your stress, it comes down to how we relate to other people. Work, right? You think about work. Work is easy if it didn't involve people. You could be an engineer, you could be a teacher. Right? You can be a back-end engineer. You don't talk to anyone else. doesn't matter. You still have to talk to somebody. You still have to be, be able to have relationship with people. That's what makes it really difficult. Like Friday night, I was uh, asked to speak at, a, at, a, at a, my friend's church, and I was on my way. I took the subway because, you know, Friday night traffic is really bad. I was in Yangjae Station. And I was just getting at Yangjae Station. Friday night, Yangjae Station is like... Madhouse, like so many people going through. It was around, service was around 8 o'clock. It was like 7.30 or, or maybe, maybe 6 to 6.30. There's a couple right by the entrance. They're just going at it. They're like staring at each other, not with like lovey-dovey eyes, but like they want to go at it. And everybody, nobody wants to look, but they all want to look. Nobody wants to hear, but, you know, I don't want to hear. Everybody's just like slowing down. And they're just going. And I'm thinking, dude, just apologize to your girlfriend, man. It'll be, be all over. But, you know, it just go on and on. And I remember thinking, man, I do not miss dating. Because, you know, when you're married, you fight, you argue, and eventually, like, oh, we'll fight tomorrow. Let's go to sleep. 
But when you're like dating, it's hard. It's hard to let things go, right? Uh, relationships are hard. My daughter, Emma, just started second grade at a Korean public school. And my wife got the list uh, a day before, list of kids that will be in her classroom. And she's reading these names. And I was like, oh, good, good, good. And then there was one name she reacted to. So I didn't want to, I was too tired that night. So next morning, as I, she was getting ready for school, I said, Emma, like, do you, are you not excited about being in the same classroom with so-and-so? So Emma goes, yeah, she's a friend, but she's not really your friend. And I was like, I was genuinely confused. Like, what does it mean she's a friend, but she's not really a friend? So I, I had to, you know, I have two daughters. I often go to my wife. I'm like, Lois, translate for me what, what that means. And Lois says, that just means she doesn't like her. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, she could just say, I don't know why she doesn't say, I don't like her. She says, oh, she's a friend, but she's not a friend. I'm like, okay. Um, pray for me, guys. I'm like, I don't understand my daughters. Uh, but second grader, right, dealing with being anxious about being in the same classroom with somebody, relationship, already feeling anxious. This is Emma's challenge. This is your challenge. This is the challenges we face each day, right? Relationships with our spouse, with our friends, with our parents, with our kids, our coworkers, old friend. It's hard. And you add to that the current modern cultural climate, a culture of strong sense of tribalism, right? When you think about like social media, when you think about just that space, there's a strong sense of tribalism, a culture and a world that is deeply divided and fragmented. In fact, in many places, when you think about it, the ties that have historically bound societies together in the past have completely fallen apart. And unfortunately, church has not been immune. Right? When you think about it, people are extremely mistrusting of churches and its leaders. And I can't blame people because we haven't done a great job of earning people's trust. In many ways, there's this, all these fragmentation and brokenness. Yet, friends, division, fragmentation, relationship issues have existed from the moment Adam and Eve took that fruit in Genesis 3. This is not a new world problem, right? Social media and different things have, have hi highlighted the brokenness, but brokenness existed from the very moment Adam and Eve took the fruit that they were not supposed to, and then God calls them out, and Adam turns around and says, well, Eve made me do it. Relational issue. And then they have sons. Cain murders his own brother, Abel, out of jealousy and anger. And then it just continues on. If you want to see family drama, read Book of Genesis. Like family drama upon drama upon drama, right? And then we, we read through Book of Acts, beginning of the church. And we love Acts 2 because everybody shares, everybody's praying, everyone's eating together. But then we get to Acts 6. The Greek-speaking Jews were upset with the other congregation because they felt like their own widows were being neglected. And Paul's letters, if you think about it, I mean, we all look at Acts 2 and we're like, we want to be there. But if you think about the early church, Paul's letters, he wrote all these letters to these churches and we have them as scripture. Much of its content, Paul is addressing what? Drama, division, strife, 
leaders disagreeing, people leaving church because they don't like each other, jealousy, arguments. Even the early church congregation had their favorite preacher say, I want to side with Apollo. I want to follow Paul. I want to follow so-and-so. Forgetting that Christ is all in all. And when we look deeper into this sense of tribalism or polarization, right, that's, a, that's a hot word these days, polarized world that we live in, it's not simply, when you think about that, it's not simply people have different views or biases or ideas. At the core of the divided world, it's really about answering the question of who am I? Right? When you... When people ask you, what's your view on this? What's your view on that? Really, when people answer, it's not them simply sharing their idea. It's actually defining who you are. It's about identity. Leading psychologists have said, humans, all of us, all of us are humans, right? No aliens in this room. Humans, we've developed our concept of self, right? This identity by watching how other people react to different versions of ourselves we want, we present. So this is why when some of us move to a new country or go to college, remember when you went to college, nobody knew you if you moved far away enough and you developed your new self, right? You've experimented on being the cool guy, the funny guy, or, 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 or the mysterious guy, or the guy who doesn't speak, or the guy, whatever. And then whatever worked, you kind of took on that personality. It worked as long, and then, you know, you were back to like being who you are. You couldn't fake it so long. In, in fact, this is how we think about ourselves. The idea of self-assurance. It mainly does not come from what we assume about ourselves. That's what we think. We need self, self-esteem, self-assurance. But rather, it is vastly shaped by what others say about us. This is why we are deeply relational beings. Why we deeply care about what others say about us. This is why it's so important that we are able to parent well because eventually this will shape who our children become. Chris Bale, he wrote a book called Breaking the Social Media Prism. It's a book on social media, social media and phenomenon and also polarization. And he speaks much about polarization in the book and he points to research in the book showing the contrary to what many assume to be true today. Right? We assume... If we can just get out of our echo chambers, friend people that are different from us and listen to different point of view, if we regularly expose ourselves to opposing views and ideas, that world will become less divided. The world will become less polarized. Yet the research he presents in the book actually debunks that belief. In fact, the research showed daily exposure to opposing political view or cultural view not only made people more angry, but it made them feel stronger about their own opinion, right? Even more extreme. Why would that be true? You see, for the majority of people today, social media have become places where they are curating a self. Like when me, I mean, like maybe we're old enough, we don't use TikTok, maybe Instagram, some of you guys Facebook. Um, when, when we log on to social media, some of you guys are like, I don't do social media. Then, then you're good, then you're good. All right, you have no friends, but that's great. Um, but you are curating a sense of self. 
right? Um, for majority of the people today, social media has become places where they're defining who they are and who they're not. Even the products, okay, so you don't do social media, fine. Even the products we buy, when we buy that iPhone, when we buy that very expensive Patagonia, uh, eco-friendly, uh, you know, fleece for like, you know, $200. I don't know why, $200. Uh, or, or the Nike shirt or Nike shoes. Uh, I use it. I, I buy them. When we, when, we, when we do that, what happens is we are, through these products, they also become tools to give us sense of identity. Have you noticed? There, there was this really interesting video about Apple. And there was this whole, like, video about the people that use Apple products, they become offended like a family member when people attack, attack Apple. There's this whole video, and I was, like, fascinated, right? There's all these endless arguments about Android, Samsung phone versus Apple phone. But Samsung people are only offended when people insist on Apple. They're not offended when people talk uh, trash about Samsung. But Apple people, it's like they've done such a great job with branding, it's like attacking a family, family member. You gotta watch this video. It's, it's, it's gnarly. Defining who they are, right? Who they're not, these, these products. And therefore, when your views or products you use are under attack, we see it as attack, attack on our identity. When your iPhone is attacked by your boring Android friend, you're like, you feel like you're being attacked. I'm, I'm an Apple person, right? So you see all these, you know, Apple users defending Apple as if they are just not just a company that they like, but something that really defines them. And, and, you know, I used to hate Apple. I used to be like, yo, Samsung all the way. Let's go Pixel. Guess what? I use Apple products. And I'm like, now I'm like, oh, I love Apple. Um, And as the world becomes more individualistic and technologically driven, people have become much more isolated and alone. Our relationships have thinned out. People have less friends, maybe less meaningful relationships than when we were growing up. It's easier to disengage because most of our friends are online or in their digital world. It's easier to disengage with those who hold different views. And our culture says, if you're not like me, if you don't think like me, if you don't hold the same values and ideas, then you don't have to exist, at least in my world. And people go extreme measures not only to disengage, but even to get rid of people from their lives. This culture, this cancer culture. Have you, have you heard of this? I'm sure you have. Like when I was growing up, yeah, people bullied one another. People disagreed. But there's no this concept of canceling someone. Right? This is a very modern thing that I'm, I'm, I'm learning. Right? And it's everywhere. And the, and the therapeutic message we often hear from our culture is to look inward to create our own journey and identity. Every Pixar movie, it's about identity, finding your own journey, pursuing your own meaning of life. Don't let anyone tell you how to live your life. Yet deep down inside, that only works. If we're really honest about that idea of self-curating and pursuing our own heart and passion, that only works until it doesn't. In fact, We're not hardwired to self 
curate, to create, to define who we are. It all comes from outside. And many modern secular thinkers have debunked the idea of self-curation. So again, it's a huge understatement to say we have a monumental hill to climb in this area of relationship personally, but also globally, the, the culture that we live in. Mercy, peacemaking, facing those who oppose us. I mean, these are hard things. So how is peace made possible in us? That was all the bad, discouraging news. But here's the good news. How are we to show mercy? How are we to pursue the heart of God? God says, blessed are pure in heart. And really that, what, what, what Jesus is talking about is having the heart of God. Doesn't it seem almost impossible when you think about your work? Think about just your workplace. Think about having, being, that place being peaceful. Right? That, it's like it, sounds, it feels impossible. Yet we have hope. We said one of the main causes of fragmentation, of polarization that exists in our lives have to do with our what? Our sense of identity, who we are. Right? Whenever we disagree with someone, when, when there is a fragmentation or division in our lives, it's really we're trying to define who we are. It's about attack on our identity. And listen to verse 9. This is where I want to focus. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers because they shall be called the sons of God. They shall be called the sons of God. Jesus gives the solution right in the text. See, if we are sons and daughters of living God, if we have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus and now we belong to Him as His sons and daughters, as heirs of the One who says we are good, that we are accepted, that we are loved. If that's our primary identity, if that's true, because that's, that, that, that's, that, that's hard to get there. It's, it takes a lot of discipline and practice to, to get ourselves that mindset of the gospel defining who we are. If that's true, really nothing can undo what Jesus has done for us. No other idea, no other opinions, no other comments. So what the cross really does for us, when you think about the gospel, it loosens the links between our ideas and our identity. It loosens the links between our ideas and identity. Christian identity is not based on our performance. We talk about this every week. We sing about this every week. It's not based on our performance. It is a free gift of God's unchanging love on basis of Christ's perfect performance. So Paul, so Paul can say what he said to the church. The first letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 4, listen to what Paul says. He says, I care very little if I am judged by you. That sounds almost like arrogant, but this is where Paul comes from. He's like, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me, right? This is why Paul can face all the haters, all the doubters. People accuse him of being a false teacher. People accuse him of being unqualified to be an apostle. People said, you shouldn't be speaking. You shouldn't be teaching. 
And Paul continued to just put his head down and continue to follow Christ, follow by planting churches and loving people. Why? Because for Paul, at the core of his identity, it was never about what others said about him. It was, it was what? He operated from a place of secure identity. His identity was never threatened. And that's hard for us. It, it sounds simple, but it is very hard. We talk about the gospel every week. That's why we do it every week as a reminder. We want to get into that space where we're constantly allowing ourselves to be defined by what the cross did for us. So the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, and this is where we'll wrap up. In the 11th chapter, in, in, the, in, the, in the book of Hebrews, there's this list of hall of faith. That sounds a little cheesy, but basically like hall of fame, but hall of faith. These amazing, uh, not so amazing, they're broken people, but they show great faith at times, like Abraham and David. And all these people, Samuel, the, the, the writer of Hebrew mentions these names and these examples of, of great faith or moments of great faith. And the writer goes in chapter 12, what you're assuming is that he would say, therefore, we, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we're assuming the author to say, set your eyes on their example. But that's not what the writer says. He doesn't say, set your eyes on your future prize. He could have said that. Paul has said that before, but the author of Hebrews does not say that. He doesn't say, set your eyes on your own sense of holiness and righteousness. He doesn't say, he could have said that. That would have been a good lesson for Jews, definitely. But no. He says what? He only says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, set your eyes on Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. In fact, he just says, friends, just set your eyes on Jesus and what he has accomplished for you and your identity through the cross. In fact, Paul continues in verse 3. I mean, look at verse 3. Did I put it? Maybe verse 3 is not there. But verse 3, if you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, it says, Consider this, who endures such opposition from sinners, that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The writer of Hebrews, whoever this person is, he or she says, Jesus endured. Why did Jesus endure the cross? so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. That we will not grow weary of doing good, weary of showing mercy, weary of making peace, weary of walking with others with endurance and love. Friends, this is the gospel. Jesus endured the cross. Right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He did that. He overcame even death itself for us. And this is what, when you think about Jesus, he doesn't fit into any of the neat and tidy categories of our culture. He is He's what? He's pro-justice, pro-mercy, and pro-life. That makes no sense. How can he be all those things? 
And Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart, yet he will, he will make war against his enemies. He is meek in nature, yet he will strike down the rebellious nations and tread the winepress of God's wrath. He will save the uttermost with, uttermost with amazing grace, but rule with a rod of iron. That's Jesus, this sort of very paradoxical figure. Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan, once said this, Jesus is both lion and lamb, and I quote, He possesses lion-like qualities, ferocious, powerful, regal, and appropriately terrifying. He's terrifying like the lion. He's full of power, glory, and dominion like lion. A lamb is quite the opposite, gentle, vulnerable, an animal of prey. How can Jesus be both, he asks. How is he both judge of all creation, a friend of sinners? How is both priest and atoning sacrifice? How is he both strong and gentle, worthy and lowly, infinitely holy, yet merciful towards his enemies? Friends, that's the wonderful paradox of our Savior. That's the identity of our Savior who holds together seemingly opposite excellencies in one God-man. That's our Savior. And that's the life through the Beatitudes. That's the life he's calling you and I into. Mercy, peacemaking, purity of heart. What seems near impossible becomes our reality, not because we can be nicer, we can forgive on our own, but because of what the cross has done for us. This is why even though in our relationships with our boss, with our coworkers, with our spouse, with our friends, we may, may want to cut ties. Your, your therapist tell you, yeah, just stay away from these people. They're not good for you. Just cut them out. Focus on your, your relationship, who you are. And those might be much needed advice. I'm not here to discredit your therapist. I love therapy. I've done therapy. I think it's good for us. But at the same time, that's not the only truth we hold on to. We are challenged to think again, at least ponder again. We're challenged to forgive. Challenged to forgive our coworkers, our spouse, our friends, our parents. And that's hard. I have not forgiven everybody in my own life. And it's hard. Yet, Scripture is in my face as I'm preaching to you that this is where God wants us to go. This is where God wants us to grow into. So I don't know all of your relationships. I don't know what's happening in your homes, in your workplace. But there's a reason why God wanted us to walk through Beatitudes. And there's a reason why God wants us to, you know, just think about the relationships in our lives. And what can we do? On our, on our part, the part that we can do. We can't control everybody. We can't make people ask for forgiveness. But what can we do, right? And because our identity does not come from any of these things or performance, we can continue to walk and, and, and continue to experience His transformative grace. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this reminder through this wonderful sermon. Jesus, you know our weakness, you know our fears, you know 
uh, where we are today, in this moment, emotionally, uh, physically, in our relationships, in our lives, with our coworkers, with our boss, with our spouse, with our boyfriend, girlfriend, you know where we are. Lord, would you, Holy Spirit, would you renew us once again? Would there be, as we sang, be healing in this room. The healer is in this place. Would you heal us in these areas of relationship? Would you heal our hearts? Would you restore these areas so that we can continue to walk in truth? Uh, Lord, we come against the lies of the enemy, lies that say, you know, we don't need to deal with any of these people. Lies that say we can just move on. Lies that say we don't, we can just do our own thing. Lord, we, 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 we cancel those lies. Uh, and we want to hear from you. You are gentle. You are, you are um, patient. So we lean on you once again, Jesus. Would you continue to walk us through? We love you. We thank you. Just name we pray. Amen.